Welcome to Stories from the Midland, a collection of historic tales from Teller County and the surrounding areas. In this episode, we'll talk about the disturbing tale of Harry Orchard. This episode was written and is being presented to you by Tommy Allen. This episode opens with two quotes. It is not power that corrupts, but fear. Fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it, and fear of the scourge of power corrupts those who are subject to it. Aung San Suu Kyi. Social justice cannot be attained by violence. Violence kills what it intends to create. Pope John Paul II. And a definition. Terrorism. The calculated use of violence to create a general climate of fear in a population and thereby to bring about a particular political objective. Encyclopedia Britannica. In 1894, Cripple Creek District mine owners extended the workday of the gold miners from 8 to 10 hours without increasing pay. In the resulting outcry, the mine owners offered to let the miners maintain the 8-hour workday for a reduced pay rate. Fighting for fair treatment of those already hardworking men, the Western Federation of Miners organized a strike which resulted in Governor Davis Waite's Waite Agreement. The miners were returned to their eight-hour workday without a reduction in pay. Emboldened by this success, the WFM grew in power throughout the Cripple Creek District, exercising mob and media control to enforce their initiatives. They expanded their labor organizations to state and regional levels, but in places outside Cripple Creek like Leadville, Colorado and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, their power began slipping due to failed and unpopular strikes. Also, the American public at large outside mining communities viewed the WFM negatively for its very overt socialist tendencies and propaganda. In the face of this wavering influence, WFM Secretary-Treasurer and second-in-command William Big Bill Haywood decided the union needed to take over the entire mining industry and targeted ore processing mills. As mill owners worked to prevent the unionization of their mills, the WFM reacted with violence, leading to retaliatory violence from the mine owners. One of the first instances was when miners blew up the gem mill in Idaho to kill or drive off the non-union workers. The WFM employed more of the same and many more deadly tactics in the Cripple Creek Mining District and one of their chief killers was a man who went by the alias, Harry Orchard. Harry Orchard was born Albert E. Horsley in Northumberland County, Ontario, Canada, on March 18, 1866. His father was of English descent and his mother of Irish. He would become the second of eight children. Horsley grew up in a farming community, attending school until the third grade before leaving to work to help support his family. While he lived in a working community and family, he and the people of his community were happy and contented, with poverty a thing almost unheard of. He was brought up to love and fear God and attended Sunday school and church. 
As he grew older and began taking work away from the family farm, he looked forward to Sundays so he could return to spend the Sabbath with his parents. He was especially fond of his mother and expressed gladness in his heart that she did not live to see what he would become. At the age of 22, he briefly worked in Michigan to gain higher wages before returning to his home and getting married. He and his wife began a cheese-making business in which he had little understanding, but in which his wife was very knowledgeable. As Horsley began to learn more of the cheese trade, he began to take shortcuts and deal dishonestly with his suppliers and his customers. He also began to excessively spend money and lived what he called a pretty fast life when away on business trips. He kept his fraudulent dealings and lifestyle secret from his wife, but she eventually found out. Because of him, they eventually sold their cheese factory and went to work for another company. Horsley continued his irresponsible behavior through several more business ventures until he burned down his own factory to hide his business dealings and to gain insurance money so that he could run away with another married woman. Eventually, the woman returned to her husband and Horsley crossed into the United States looking for work. He was soon delivering milk near Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where he discovered the Western Federation of Miners ruled with an iron fist, driving away anyone who spoke against the Union, often at gunpoint. And those guns weren't just an idle threat, as Horsley was told stories of anti- or non-Union people the WFM men shot. In Idaho, Horsley bought shares in a mine and opened a wood and coal business with a great deal of potential. But his irresponsibility soon got the better of him, and he lost it all. In March of 1899, he took a job as a shoveler in the Tiger-Porman mine and immediately joined the Western Federation of Miners Union. He soon found that the union leaders shifted blame for the outrages they conducted onto the miners. Also, union leaders encouraged miners to buy a good rifle and plenty of ammunition for the time is coming when they would need it. Horsley found that radical members, while in the minority, were the loudest and that anyone who spoke out against radical idealism was quickly silenced. Horsley had his first experience in terrorism on April 29, 1899, when he participated in the bombing of the Bunker Hill Mill where non-union workers were being given jobs. Horsley observed that the more liberal union leaders manipulated the vote of the miners to approve the attack. Union men hijacked a Northern Pacific train and the excursion that would be known as the Dynamite Express was underway. After arriving at the mill, the Union miners conducted a disorganized assault on what turned out to be a mill devoid of people. They shot and killed two nearby men, one a non-union worker and another a union worker they mistook for being non-union. Then Horsley participated in the demolition as one of the men who lit the fuses on the dynamite. A few days later, he fled his job at the Tiger Porman mine when federal troops arrived. With the troops in place and anti-union measures being implemented, he found he wouldn't be able to return to Coeur d'Alene. Horsley worked several short-term jobs until he found himself dazzled by the modern city of Cripple Creek in July 1902. He took mining jobs at the Trachyte, 
Hull City, and Vindicator Mines spending his money as fast as he earned it. High grading, the practice of stealing ore from the mines by miners who tucked it into their clothes at the end of the day, appealed to Horsley and he began to steal regularly. As he was continuously hiding from his past, he had also taken on the alias Harry Orchard. During this time, he fell into depression, drank heavily, and married a widow he didn't love. He also joined the local union in 1903, where he noted the officers of the union never seemed to work but always had plenty of money. In early 1903, when Colorado Springs Mills refused union demands to unionize, the union sent Cripple Creek miners to threaten them. This was repeated several times through August, driven by the Western Federation of Miners. According to Horsley, who we'll now refer to as Orchard, the WFM leadership wanted to turn Colorado into what they termed as a slaughter ground. Interestingly, the miners of the Cripple Creek District were largely uninterested in striking. The leaders of the WFM and radical local leaders knew this and took steps to convince the workers to follow their lead. One way they did this is to showcase the plight of the scabs and insinuate unsupportive workers would receive similar treatment. Unions labeled non-union workers as scabs and circulated their photographs to all the unions in the country so they would be in potentially mortal danger wherever they traveled for work. The actual violence really started in Cripple Creek when some union men dubbed the Timber Gang began dragging non-union men out of their houses at night, beating them up, and then shooting them and leaving them for dead. As tensions rose, the mayor of Victor and other prominent locals petitioned the governor for troops, and the state militia was eventually called in. Disregarding the fact that the militia was called in to combat union-led violence, those unions accused the militiamen of taking advantage of their position over the city. Union-controlled law enforcement officers soon found themselves facing off against militia troops and tensions continued to rise. The union leadership soon discovered that their strike was having little effect on mine operations as a steady supply of scabs were coming in for work. So they sent Orchard to conduct his second act of terrorism and blow up the Vindicator mine, specifically when the scabs were at work, to kill them and scare more of them off. Orchard had earlier discovered a carload of dynamite in the mine while high grading. With the promise of $200 of payment and resentful of the scabs taking his work, fully aware that the explosion would likely kill everyone in the mine, he and an accomplice descended. They made their way towards the car full of explosives, but they had to abort their first attempt as they took pistol shots at a non-union worker who had discovered them, and then they found the dynamite had been moved. For Orchard's next attempt, he was offered the sum of $500. WFM leaders specifically instructed him to rig explosives in a way that would kill many scabs. So he gathered his explosives and at about 2.30 in the morning, he and another man descended the Vindicator's mine shaft. Down on the sixth level, they buried their dynamite with some blasting caps, affixed a pistol to a beam positioned to shoot the caps, and ran a line from the trigger to the safety rail that would need to be lifted for miners to exit the elevator. The saboteurs exited the mine and waited for word of the explosion the next morning. But nothing happened. No explosion. 
over the next week, the Union men tried to kill scabs by derailing several trains they were riding on. But these terrorist acts, too, were unsuccessful. On a Saturday about a week after setting the explosives, Orchard received word that his trap had exploded, killing many men, including the mine superintendent, Charlie McCormick, and shift boss, Mel Beck. His WFM masters were pleased. In the ensuing investigation, several local union leaders were arrested and then released. With subjective, inflammatory language, union representatives and the union-aligned press painted this as persecution. Fresh off this success, Orchard traveled to Denver to meet with the Western Federation of Miners' leadership, where he was lauded for his accomplishments. He soon found himself working directly for WFM President Charles Moyer and the Secretary-Treasurer Big Bill Haywood. After a disagreement with the governor over union workers in Telluride, Moyer began to plan actions to kill off many of the town's residents. The first plan he concocted was to fill beer barrels with dynamite, attach and light a time fuse, and then roll them down into the town. Another was to poison the local drinking water with cyanide of potassium, easily obtainable from the local mills. Moyer was arrested while preparing for the barrel plan. Over the next several days, several more arrests were made, and Sheriff Rutan from Telluride was sent to Denver to arrest Haywood. Haywood dodged the arrest and began plotting his revenge. He sent Orchard to kill Sheriff Rutan as he made his way to the train station. But the plan failed because the sheriff was too well guarded. Haywood next decided Colorado Governor James Peabody needed to die to satisfy his need for vengeance. Orchard scoped out Governor Peabody's home and learned the governor's routines and habits. He and his accomplice originally planned to use shotguns to kill the governor, but changed their plans to use explosives. But Moyer called Orchard off before the murder could be committed. Instead, Orchard was called on to be part of a crew intended to capture and mutilate Light Gregory, an Idaho Springs detective and deputy, for leading deputies against a strike in the southern coal fields. After midnight, as Gregory was walking home after a night playing cards, Orchard and two others followed him. But the trio got caught up in some wires placed to protect lawns. The confusion alerted Gregory that he was being followed, and when he turned around to face his pursuers, Orchard shot him three times with a shotgun loaded with buckshot. By this time, the union's annual convention was meeting and many of the attending delegates expressed dissatisfaction with the ongoing strikes and with the large amount of money that had been spent. To quell the dissension, the union's top leaders sent Orchard back to Cripple Creek to commit an act of violence that would silence the quarreling delegates. Orchard decided the train depot at Independence would be the perfect target. He was looking to kill the scabs that boarded the train there at 2.30 every morning. So, on Sunday, June 5th, after dark, Orchard buried two 50-pound boxes of dynamite under the train depot's platform. He rigged the trigger and ran a pole wire to his hiding spot tied around a chair rung. And then he waited with another union man. 
In the early morning, as June 5th became June 6th, a bright moon rose over the station as the non-union men came off shift. They gathered on the platform and chatted while they waited for the train. Then the train was spotted coming in. It closed to about 100 feet when Orchard and his accomplice pulled the wire. According to the newspaper, the Silver Cliff Rustler, suddenly a terrific explosion occurring under the platform of the depot tossed nearly one half of the waiting miners high into the air, mangling the bodies of 10 of them almost beyond identification, killing immediately 11, injuring two to such an extent that they died soon after their arrival at the hospital and maiming five for life. As the Union killers ran from the scene, their act of terrorism complete, debris from the explosion rained all around them. Orchard left Colorado for about six weeks, returning to Denver in August of 1904. He was soon sent to kill Fred Bradley, the head of a mine operators association of California and who was raising a great deal of money to drive the WFM out of the state. Orchard left for San Francisco and upon arriving began using the name John Dempsey. Upon finding Bradley would be out of town for several months, Orchard began his wait, changing his alias to Mr. Barry. He bought 10 pounds of dynamite and took a room near Bradley's flat. When Bradley returned home that October, Orchard studied the man to establish his life patterns and habits. In his first murder attempt, he put strychnine into the milk in the bottles left by the milkman. But Bradley's cook discovered the milk tasted strange and it never made its way to the intended target. So he next fashioned a pipe bomb, and on November 17, 1904, he planted it under a front archway and ran its pull cord to the entry door of the Bradley residence. When the bomb exploded, it blew Bradley from his doorway out to the sidewalk. The explosion was blamed on a gas leak, and Orchard Bomb was never suspected by anyone but Bradley himself. Bradley wasn't killed, but the media reported that he would lose his hearing and his eyesight. Neither actually happened, and Bradley eventually recovered. In the gubernatorial elections of 1904, the WFM again wanted Governor Peabody killed so he could not defeat their candidate, Alva Adams. But Adams was elected in what is thought of as the most corrupt election in Colorado history. The unseated Governor Peabody charged fraud and the WFM again decided to kill him. Orchard and his crew built another larger pipe bomb, this one holding 25 pounds of dynamite. They buried it in the snow against a curb that ran along a sidewalk Peabody regularly walked. Orchard waited to pull the wire that would set off the explosive, but at the last minute, several coal wagons came toward the would-be murderers, and Peabody's party was able to pass safely before the wagons were gone. The snow melted the next day, so they couldn't use the bomb again. Orchard followed with another failed bomb meant for Peabody. Then, under WFM orders, he placed one meant for State Supreme Court Justice Luther Goddard and another meant for Justice William Gabbert. Neither bomb hit their target. <laughs> 
When the bombings failed, the WFM set Orchard to killing General Sherman Bell, leader of Colorado State Militia that stood up against the WFM in Cripple Creek. Bud Orchard was soon called off to pursue former Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg. Orchard claimed the WFM President Moyer wanted to kill Stunenberg as a threat against those who would stand against the Union. The WFM had sent several other men to kill the former governor, and they had all failed. Orchard's attack on Stunenberg would be the last act of terror he would commit for the Western Federation of Miners. He packed the large bomb originally meant for Peabody into a trunk and headed north to Caldwell, Idaho, where the former governor was now raising sheep. Orchard joined up with a man named Jack Simpkins and began to plan the attack. The trunk in which Orchard had his bomb was lost by the railway, so the men built a bomb from a small wooden box and 10 pounds of dynamite. The killers placed the bomb near a path to the home, laid some weeds over it, and then stretched a tripwire across the path. They retreated into the darkness and waited for... nothing. The bomb didn't explode. It turns out that the tripwire was hit too fast and the bomb malfunctioned. Simpkins lost his nerve and left town, leaving Orchard to try again. It took several weeks, but Orchard finally had his chance. He took the dynamite from the wooden box of the original bomb and transferred it to what he referred to as a tight tin box. On December 30th, 1905, he placed the bomb inside a fence and attached the pole wire to the entry gate. About two and a half blocks back towards his hotel, Orchard passed Studenberg headed home in the opposite direction. This time, as he neared his hotel, he heard the explosion and knew he'd completed his assignment. The next day, he was recognized by a sheriff from Oregon, and the local sheriff detained him. They searched his room and found bomb-making supplies and cast-offs. On July 1, 1906, he was officially arrested. He originally tried to maintain his innocence, but intense interrogation led to his confession, in which he implicated Charles Moyer, William Haywood, and activist George Pettibone. In the end, none of the men were convicted, though Haywood would eventually flee to Russia to avoid charges of seditious conspiracy. Orchard was tried individually and received a sentence of death by hanging, but the governor commuted his sentence to life in prison. After a mild stroke and three months of being bedridden, Orchard slipped into a coma and died on April 13, 1954, 48 years after his arrest. In later years, the WFM and others would try to paint Orchard as a tool or spy of the mine owners. Their claimed evidence is a 1903 incident in which Orchard informed on some union men trying to derail a train full of non-union workers. In his account, Orchard states this was done out of jealousy that he wasn't included in the union's action and therefore wouldn't make what he expected would be easy money. But soon, Orchard was a favorite of the WFM and was provided a steady stream of funding. Accusations of Orchard as an informant have never been definitively proven, but his terrorist work for the Western Federation of Miners has.
Thank you for listening. This is Tommy Allen, and on behalf of Trevor Phipps, have a great day. And should you find yourself given the chance to participate in tyrannical or terrorist actions, please don't. We'll see you next time for more Stories from the Midland. You can find the resources used in the writing of this episode on its webpage. Visit storiesfromthemidland.com slash podcast.